This evening, we're continuing our overview of the Old Testament book titled Nehemiah. With this as the focus, if you would, let's open our Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 11. And as you make your way to the 11th chapter of Nehemiah, I just want to take a moment to remind you that Nehemiah was the man that the Lord chose to raise up. And he sent him to rebuild the defensive walls there in Jerusalem. And and this was so that the people could safely serve the Lord there at the temple in Jerusalem. And then once the walls were rebuilt and after the defensive doors were hung in their place, the people of Israel were then encouraged to rededicate their lives to the Lord by submitting themselves once again to the Mosaic Covenant. And that's what they did. Well, after recommitting themselves to the Mosaic Covenant, the leaders of the the people then were determined to populate the city of Jerusalem with people who could help to protect the city walls against future attacks of the enemy. And and while it's my guess that most of them uh, were actually just wanting to return to the land of their own possession, the leaders decided to seek the Lord so that there might be a fair way to identify those who should become sacrificial servants who were ready to stay in Jerusalem and protect the the temple of the Lord from any future attacks of the enemy. And with this as their goal, it's important for us to realize that the God of Israel, he is the omnipotent or omnipotent or or the almighty creator of the universe. He's all-powerful. And with that being the case, listen, there should really be no doubt in our minds that the Lord doesn't need people to protect his temple. The, the Lord doesn't need humans to do anything for him. He doesn't need anything. And yet at the same time, it's not uncommon for the Lord to then call his people to step up and serve him in these sorts of ways that might stretch our faith. And that's what we find in our text tonight. The Lord using the leaders of Israel to call his people to serve him in this sort of way. And it's in similar fashion that the Lord still calls those who trust in him to serve him in ways that will stretch our faith. And as we make our way through the text before us tonight, we're going to continue to see how those who walk by faith with Jesus, well, we're going to be led by the Lord to become courageous Christians who are serving our Savior in supernatural ways. So with this as the focus, let's turn our attention to the 11th chapter of Nehemiah's account. If you would look with me here at Nehemiah chapter 11, we'll begin reading at verse one. Here we learn that the leaders of the people dwelt at Jerusalem and the rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of 10 to dwell in Jerusalem, the holy city, and nine tenths were to dwell in other cities. And the people blessed all the men who willingly offered themselves to dwell at Jerusalem. These are the heads of the province who dwelt in Jerusalem. But in the cities of Judah, everyone dwelt in his own possession. In their cities, Israelites, priests, Levites, Nethanim, and the descendants of Solomon's servants. Now here in the beginning of this chapter, we find the Israelites, they're casting lots in order to determine which of them would return to their hometowns and you know, which would go and, and occupy their personal properties or, or the land of their inher- inheritance, uh, while uh, the, the rest, the 1%, would then remain in Jerusalem in order to live there and help protect the walls of the city. 
Now, uh, just for the sake of clarity, it'll help you to know that the casting of lots was a very common practice in ancient Israel. As a matter of fact, the casting of lots is actually mentioned 70 times in the Old Testament. And while this practice probably varied from town to town and from time period to time period, uh, the basic concept of this custom was sort of like the flipping of a coin. And, And so with this in mind, it's interesting to know that the leaders of Israel would actually cast lots in order to determine the will of the Lord. And I like the way that King Solomon described it in Proverbs chapter 16. It's verse 33 where he declares this. He says, the lot lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. The lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. In other words, the casting of lots was one way that the Lord actually helped his people to discover his will. And so we we shouldn't be surprised to learn that the leaders of Israel here, they were once again casting lots in order to determine which of them would stay in Jerusalem and and, and then begin to serve God there in the holy city. Now, before you decide to start flipping a coin in an attempt to discern the will of the Lord, I would remind you that every born-again believer has now become the temple of the Holy Spirit. The moment you place your faith in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit takes up residence within the believer and we become the temple of God. And with the, te- with, with the Holy Spirit dwelling within us, remember, he's also promised to guide us into all truth. God has promised to guide us into all truth by the leading of his Holy Spirit. And with that being the case, we don't need to cast lots. We don't need to flip a coin and say, oh God, speak to me through the flipping of this coin. We don't need that. We don't need to cast lots in order to discover the will of God, because listen, God doesn't mumble. And and God can speak to us in, in, in a very clear way if we will simply slow down and prayerfully listen. And one great way to do that is by praying and reading the Bible, spending devotional time with the Lord, relationally looking to the Lord to lead us. And as we wait upon him, he will speak to us. And as we wait for the leading of the Lord, we can rejoice in knowing that the spirit of the living God, he knows how to guide us according to the will of our heavenly father. So rather than casting lots or flipping coins or drawing straws or any of these sorts of things, let's simply just walk by faith as we allow the Holy Spirit to guide us in our devotional time. With this as the goal, we should also take a moment to notice that there were many Israelites who, they didn't really want to wait for a a lot to be cast. And the reason why is because it was in their heart to volunteer for this service. As a matter of fact, notice with me again there in verse two. Here again, we learn that the people blessed all the men who willingly offered themselves to dwell at Jerusalem. The people that wanted to go back to their own inheritance, the the people who wanted to return to their own villages, they blessed the men who willingly offered themselves. uh, Those words willingly offered were translated from a Hebrew word, which in this context refers to those who freely offer themselves as a volunteer. And so while some ended up staying in Jerusalem because the lot fell to them, There were many others who simply stepped forward as they volunteered themselves to become the servant who was ready to serve the Lord there in the city of Jerusalem in this way. 
Now, as we consider the example of those who became these willing servants of the Lord, I just want to take a moment to remind you of the encouragement that the Lord Jesus presented after hearing his disciples arguing about which of them would become the greatest in the kingdom. That was a very common argument amongst the apostles, which one of them would achieve the greatest levels of leadership within the kingdom of God. And that's exactly what's happening in Mark chapter 9 when Jesus then challenges his apostles by declaring this. He says, if anyone desires to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. If anyone desires to be first, if that's what you really want, you want to be you know, the cream of the crop, you want to be at the, the, the head of the pack, then be a servant. And be a servant of all. Christian, listen, when, when it comes to the everlasting kingdom of God, the, the, the way you climb a ladder here in the secular world is very different from the way you become the greatest in the kingdom. Those who want to accomplish incredible things for the Lord must simply choose to become the humble servants of our Savior. This was precisely the point that Jesus made when he took the time to wash the feet of his disciples. As a matter of fact, it's in John chapter 13. There Jesus declares, If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Most assuredly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who is sent greater than he who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. If you know these things, then you'll be blessed, not because you know them, but when you do them, With this in mind, we should take a moment to examine our own lives by asking, do I come to church so that I can wash the feet of others? Or am I here looking for others to wash my feet? In other words, am I here looking for others to bless me? Or am I stepping forward as a servant of our Savior so that I can become the servant of all? And, and with that question in mind, you know, I, would, I would pray that you know, we would all set aside our own agendas so that we might simply become the humble minions of our master, Jesus. While it's true that believers have been called to become humble servants, it's also true that we've been called to become courageous Christians as we serve our Savior. And with this as the focus, let's pick up our study of Nehemiah chapter 11. I want to pick up beginning at verse 4. Here Nehemiah writes, Also in Jerusalem dwelt some of the children of Judah and of the children of Benjamin, the children of Judah, Athaiah, the son of Uzziah, the son of Zechariah, the son of Amariah, the son of Shephatiah, the son of Mahalalel, of the children of Perez and Maasiah, the son of Baruch, the son of Kolhosen, the son of Hazaiah, the son of Adaiah, <clears throat> the son of Joireb, the son of Zechariah, the son of Shaloni. All the sons of Perez who dwelt at Jerusalem were 468 valiant men. Now here in these verses we find Nehemiah. He's focusing in on uh, those who were living there in the city of Jerusalem and seeing how the city of Jerusalem was actually situated within the tribal land of Benjamin and, and, and also close to the border of Judah 
Well, we shouldn't be surprised to learn that there were many from the tribes of both Benjamin and Judah who stepped forward to become servants of the Lord there in the city. And time would fail us to explore all the stories of all the men found in this list, but uh, for the sake of time, I just want to spend a few minutes considering the 468 valiant men who were the descendants of Perez. Now, just for the sake of context, it'll help you to know that Perez was actually the son of Judah. And it's here in our text tonight where uh, we find more than a thousand years have passed now from Perez. And, and we find the descendants of Perez being known as valiant men. Now, that word valiant speaks of the great courage that these men had in the face of danger. And so according to Nehemiah, these descendants of Perez were men of notable courage. And it's also interesting to note that this valiant lineage of Perez is actually found in Matthew chapter 1. There Matthew presents the genealogy of Joseph, who, remember, is the adoptive father of Jesus. Not only that, but the valiant lineage of Perez is also found in Luke chapter 3, There Luke presents us with the genealogy of our Savior's earthly mother, Mary. So we see then that both Mary and Joseph, both of them were descendants of Judah's son, Perez. And I have no doubt that the Lord wanted to honor this bloodline as he blessed both Joseph and Mary with this incredible privilege of raising our Redeemer, Jesus. Now, as we consider the way that all the sons of Perez who dwelt at Jerusalem during the days of Nehemiah, they were these valiant men, it's important for us to understand that the parents who want to raise courageous kids ought to first lead by example. The parent who wants to raise courageous kids should lead by example. And listen, the parents who want to raise spiritual servants should lead by example. Christian, listen, if you raise your kids to see school and sports as being more important than spiritual service, well, don't be surprised if they grow up to become adults who place a greater value on the secular things of this world. And it's sad to say that many, many kids stop going to church when they head off to college, and and partly because they were raised by parents who made their schooling and sports a priority over going to church and serving. So that's how they were raised, and that's what ends up happening as they go off to college. That being the case, I encourage every Christian to lead by example. Don't just tell them these biblical truths. Show them. Become those believers who spend time serving our Savior here within our fellowship of faith so that they can see you serving them. Well, then my kid's going to have to be here for two services. Yeah? They've got to be somewhere, right? Church is the worst place. <laughs> it's one, more, one more Bible study? Oh, God forbid. Yeah, become those parents who are actually showing your kids what it looks like to be a servant. Doesn't mean they're going to follow your example, but at least they saw it. And at least they know what it looks like. In order to further grasp my point, let's consider the way that the descendants of Benjamin also stepped up to serve there in the city of Jerusalem. Let's pick up our study of Nehemiah chapter 11, beginning at verse 7. Here we learn that these are, <clears throat> are the sons of Benjamin, Salu, the son of Meshulam, 
the son of Joed, the son of Pedaiah, the son of Koliah, the son of Maasiah, the son of Ithiel, the son of Jeshiah, and after him Gabaiah and Salai, 928. Joel, the son of Zikri, was their overseer, and Judah, the son of Senua, was second over the city. Now here in these verses, we find the descendants of Benjamin uh, also, uh, you know, the, the, we find this one group agreeing to serve there in the city of Jerusalem. And, and again, uh, there's too many names for us to consider, too many stories to consider here for the time that we have tonight. But I would like to focus your attention on the, on the man who became the governor of Jerusalem. It's there in verse 9. Here again, we learn that Joel, the son of Zikri, was their overseer. Just to be clear, the word overseer was used in reference to the chief governor of the city. And it's also interesting to note that the Hebrew name, which is rendered Joel, actually means Yahweh is God. So we see then that a man that's named Yahweh is God was raised up to govern the city of Jerusalem. Not only that, uh, but it's there in the middle of verse 9 where we learn that a Benjamite uh, man named Judah was second over the city. In other words, uh, Judah, this descendant of Benjamin, was the deputy governor of Jerusalem at this point in time. And listen, that name Judah was also used of those who would sing praises to the Lord. And if his name is truly reflective of of his life, uh, then the deputy governor of Jerusalem was also a man who was praising the Lord. What we can say for sure is this, that the Benjamite man, uh, you know, uh, these, these Benjamites who stepped up to serve the Lord there in the city of Jerusalem, they were determined to maintain a political system which would honor the Lord. These, these men were creating a political system there in Jerusalem which would actually honor the Lord. With this as the example, every Christian ought to pray for servants like Joel and Judah men who want to glorify God through the political policies that we implement uh, here within our nation. And, and, you know, it's interesting that, you know, many Christians will make this argument that, well, there's a separation between politics and the church. I don't don't need a pastor to run the country and these sorts of things. Would it be to God that we would have pastors running this country, Bible-believing pastors? God help us. But yeah, we do need godly leaders in order to have the blessings of God on this nation. And at the same time, you know, we should not only be praying for political leaders who want to glorify God in politics, but we should also be praying for spiritual leaders who have the same desire for the church because we're starting to see less and less of that happening uh, within the Christian church today. And with this as the focus, uh, let's pick up our study of Nehemiah chapter 11. Look with me there beginning at verse 10. Here Nehemiah writes, of the priests, Jediah the son of Jorab, and Jekin, uh, Saraiah, the son of Hilkiah, the son of Meshulam, the son of Zadok, the son of Merioth, the son of Ahitub, uh, was the leader of the house of God. Their brethren who did the work of the house were 822, and Adaiah, the son of Jehoram, uh, the son of Peleliah, the son of Amzi, the son of Zechariah, the son of Pasher, the son of Melchijah, and his brethren, heads of the father's houses, were 242, and Amashai, the son of Azarel, the son of Ahazi, the son of Meshalamoth, the son of Immer, and their brethren, mighty men of valor, were 128. Their overseer was Zabdiel, the son of one of the great men. Now, at this point in time, I just want you to turn to your neighbor and say, Meshalamoth. I just think it's 
I think it's the right thing for us to do right now. I think somebody should name their child Meshlamoth just in honor of this chapter. But anyway, we find Nehemiah here. He's presenting us with a list of priests here who, who uh, were also called mighty men of valor. And, and that word valor uh, w- was translated from the same Hebrew word which was rendered valiant back in verse 6. So valiant and valor, they're, they're both coming from the same Hebrew word. And what this means is that the priests who were determined to stay in the city and serve the Lord, they were men of great moral strength and they were uh, men with great courage. They had courageous hearts. We should also notice that their overseer was a priest named Zabdiel, and Zabdiel here is called the son of one of the great men. Now, there is some confusion about the Hebrew word, which is rendered one of the great men. For example, uh, the scholars who created the ESV, the NIV, and the NASB, uh, they rendered the Hebrew word as a proper name, and yet the main problem with this is that it's a Hebrew word that's found in a plural form, uh, and plural, you know, uh, plural words weren't commonly proper names. And so there is some level of debate about whether to translate this as a proper name or as one of the greats. So even if it's a proper name, we don't find the name anywhere else in the Bible, so we don't know, you know who this person is. And if it's just one of the greats, then there's no name to even tie this you know, bloodline back to Judah, or uh, back to uh, Aaron, I should say. Uh, but, uh, but regardless of Zabdiel's exact bloodline, what we know is that he was a courageous man who had come down from the bloodline of Aaron. And as we consider the way that these courageous priests were ready to stay there in the city of Jerusalem, it's important for us to remember that the enemies of Israel were still beyond the gates of this city, and they were preparing to try to tear down all the work that they had put into this new wall. And, and this might be the time to say, you know what, we're going to go ahead and get on out of here you know, before the attack comes. That would be the safe thing to do. But rather than looking for a way to save themselves from the attacks of the enemy, these mighty men of valor, they decided to stay there in Jerusalem and serve the Lord at the temple. And not only were they ready to serve the Lord there at the temple, but they were ready to take up arms against the attacks of the enemy. And in light of their example, would it be to God that every Christian would have that same courageous heart to say, you know what, going out and accomplishing the Great Commission is going to, you know, uh, result in the attacks of the enemy and whatever, let God deal with it. We ought to have that kind of courage, knowing that, yeah, the enemy's going to attack. The minute we start serving the Lord, the minute we step up and make ourselves the servants of God, the enemy's going to attack. What is that to us? That's, that's God's problem. Let God deal with it. Let's just be courageous Christians. Those priests were courageous, and, and so were the Levites who decided to stay and serve. And with this as the focus, let's pick up our study of Nehemiah 11. If you would look with me there, beginning at verse 15, here we read also of the Levites, Shemaiah, the son of Hashab, the son of Azrakim, the son of Hashabiah, the son of Buni, uh, Shabbatiah, and Josabad of the heads of the Levites had, <clears throat> had the oversight of the business outside of the house of God. Mataniah, the son of Micah, the son of Zabdi, the son of Asaph, the leader who began the thanksgiving with prayer, back Bukiah, the second among his brethren, and Abda, the son of Shamua, the son of Galal, the son of Jeduthun. All the Levites in the holy city were 284. 
Now here in these verses, we find Nehemiah presenting us with this list of Levites who decided to stay there in the city of Jerusalem so that they could also accomplish their calling by assisting the priests of the Lord. That's what the Levites did. They were the servants of the priests. They assisted uh, the priests of God. And it's here in this list of servants where Nehemiah paid special attention to this uh, Levite named Mataniah who began the thanksgiving with prayer. Now, in order to understand what this means, I want to consider the perspective of a commentator named Robert Jameson. And, and according to Jameson, Mataniah was the leader of the choir. And as the leader of the choir, he chanted the public praise at the time of the morning and the evening sacrifice. And Jameson also points out that this act of service was always accompanied with some appropriate psalm, which would correspond with the sacred music being selected. And, and I think there's a little bit more to it than just that, because I, I think that Mataniah was a Levite who was actually in charge of all the worship services there at the temple in Jerusalem. And, and we're not just talking about the, the singers who would offer praise, but you know, all the acts of worship that the Levites engaged in as they supported the priests in the sacrificial system. And while there were other Levitical leaders who were responsible for any business that occurred outside the house of God, Mataniah was the man who stepped up to serve the priest who remained in uh, there in Jerusalem, and, and I believe that he was overseeing all the other Levites. Uh, he was making sure the singers were there to sing. He was making sure that the gatekeepers were there keeping the gates. Uh, he was making sure that the Nethanim were there doing their uh, responsibilities, you know, accomplishing their tasks. The Nethanim were there to be servants of the Levites as the Levites were servants of the priests. And, and I believe that this is the guy that was just making everything run smooth uh, in, in all these different arenas. Not only that, but we also find him delegating his authority to others who could help him lead the Levites. As a matter of fact, if you would look with me again at Nehemiah chapter 11, we'll pick up at verse 19 where Nehemiah writes, Moreover, the gatekeepers, Akub, Talman, and their brethren who kept the gates were 172. And the rest of Israel, of the priests and Levites, were in all the cities of Judah, everyone in his inheritance. But the Nethanim dwelt in Ophel, and Zia and Gishpah were over the Nethanim. Also, the overseer of the Levites at Jerusalem was Uzi, the son of Bani, the son of Hashabiah, the son of Mataniah, the son of Micah, of the uh, sons of Asaph, the singers in charge of the service of the house of God, for it was the king's command concerning them that a certain portion should be for the singers, a quota day by day. Uh, now, here in these verses, we find Nehemiah, he's first listing the gatekeepers, and then he lists the Nethanim, and then the singers. And all of these were responsible for helping the priest to accomplish the daily services there at the temple. And we also learned that Mataniah had appointed Ziha and Gishpa over the Nethanim. And so he delegates this responsibility to these two guys that were uh, making sure that, the, that the, the, the Nethanim were doing their job. And not only that, but we also see here that he appoints his great-grandson, Uzi, over the singers. And uh, Uzi, uh, not to be confused uh, you know, with the gun... Uh, was uh, always shooting his mouth off. But, uh, but seriously, Mataniah here uh, helps us to see how good leaders are those who raise up other leaders. Good leaders are those who raise up other leaders. And in this way, good leaders work together and, and with the goal of helping more and more people to learn how to become the servants of the Lord. You know, whenever I see leaders like, well, I, I, I'll just do it because it'll just take me more time to train someone else on how to do this. Well, that's not leadership. That's just you doing something. 
A leader is someone who says, here, come, let me show you how to do this so that you can help me do it, and then I'll just turn it over to you, and then you can go help someone else learn how to do it. That's what real leadership is about. Good leaders raise up other leaders who will raise up other leaders. Well, as we consider the way that Mataniah was raising up leaders to oversee these different aspects of uh, the Levitical service, I want to consider the responsibility of of the singers there at the temple. And it's important to realize that they were there twice a day, every day, morning and evening, singing the praises of God as the daily sacrifices were being offered. And it's for this reason that King Artaxerxes determined to give them a daily quota for their service. These guys were there singing every single day at every single sacrifice. Now, we aren't told why the king decided to provide this provision for the Levitical singers, but what we do know is, you know, back in Ezra chapter 7, we learn about this tax-exempt status of the priests, the Levites, the singers, the gatekeepers, the Nethanim, or servants of this house of God. That's right. King Artaxerxes determined to bless all the servants at the temple by freeing them from every tax, every tribute, every toll, And above this, you know, the king also decided to bless these Levitical singers by ensuring that they would receive a daily provision for their service. And it might be that, you know, he just had come to the temple and heard them singing beautifully to the Lord and just wanted to bless them. We don't really know why. But regardless of the reason why, what we do know, though, is that 90% of the Israelites returned to the land of their inheritance, while 10% of them remained there in the city of Jerusalem. And with this as the focus... I want to pick up our study of Nehemiah chapter 11. Let's consider the final verses of this chapter, beginning at verse 24. Here we learn that Pethahiah, the son of Meshelazabal, of the children of Zerah, the son of Judah, was the king's deputy in all matters concerning the people. And as for the villages with their fields, some of the children of Judah dwelt in Kirjath Arba and its villages, Dibon and its villages, Jacob, Zeal, and its villages in Yeshua, um, Molada, Beth Pellet, Hazar, Shul, and Beersheba, and its villages in Ziklag and Mekona, and its villages in En Rimon, Zorah, Jarmuth, Zenoah, Adullam, and their villages in Lachish, and its fields in Azekah, and its villages. They dwelt from Beersheba to the valley of Hinnom. Also, the children of Benjamin from Geba dwelt in Michmash, Agi and Bethel and their villages, in Anathoth, Nob, Ananiah, in Hazor, Ramah, Gittim, in Hadid, Zeboim, Nebelat, in Lod, Ono, and Valley of Craftsmen. Some of the Judean divisions of Levites were in Benjamin. Now, here in the final verses of this chapter, Nehemiah turns our attention now to those who return to their land. They return to their villages. They return to the inheritance that God had given them. Remember, God had uh, split up uh, all of the land, uh, giving each tribe their own portion of land. And here we find uh, a focus in on the people from Judah and the people from Benjamin who then settled back in their cities. And I want to remind you that while the 90% returned to uh, their homes outside of Jerusalem, the leaders of Israel had been looking for 10% of the people to help populate the city of Jerusalem for the sake of security. And meanwhile, uh, this, this ended up, you know, the 10% that stayed in, in the city, they ended up allowing the 90% to return to the land of their inheritance so that they could go and serve the Lord, you know, with the crops that they grew and the fish and the game that they caught and these sorts of things. So in this way, you know, the 90% 
who were out, you know, outside of the city gates of Jerusalem, they were out in their fields making a living beyond the city walls of Jerusalem. They, they were able to then provide financial support to those who stayed behind and stepped up to serve there in the city. In this way, they were uh, serving the Lord with their tithes, with their offerings that they would bring to the temple. So, so with that being the, 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 the plan here, uh, it's in similar fashion that the Lord has also called every Christian to support those you know, who have been called to full-time ministry. And I'm not here to teach the tithe because I don't believe the Old Testament tithe is for the church age. I do believe that, you know, if, if 10% was required under the law, what should we give under grace? If 10% was required by law, then what should grace giving look like? Well, regardless of how you answer that question, we must not fail to recognize that the same basic idea <clears throat> that those who are receiving the ministry uh, you know, from full-time ministers should be supporting the full-time ministers. And, and I think that Paul puts it plainly in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, uh, where, he, where he asks this. He says, do you not know that those who minister the holy things eat of the things of the temple, and those who serve at the altar partake of the offerings of the altar? Even so, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should live from the gospel. This parallel, this comparison between the priests of the Old Testament and the pastors of today is perfectly clear. That much like in Old Testament times, the people would bring everything necessary for making the showbread and, and providing for the priests and, and whatnot. And in the same way, the Lord has commanded, that's what Paul says, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should live from the gospel. That's a New Testament commandment. It's not the tithe, and yet it is a commandment. In other words, those who are called to serve the Lord in a full-time capacity should be receiving financial support from those who are enjoying the spiritual fruits of the labor. Or more simply put, the offerings that we give here at our church are not only used to pay the bills, to, to keep the lights on, to, uh, to keep the AC nice and cold, you know, uh, you know, the... The money's not only just used for just these practical matters, but, but these offerings are also used to provide for the income of the staff. Now, with this in mind, I just want to encourage you just to briefly consider a scenario where, let's say you're working as a waiter or a waitress at a restaurant, and you spend an hour or so serving your customer, and you bring them the food they ordered, you're refilling their glass several times, you know, and, and then when it comes time to bring them the bill, you come out and discover they're gone. They're gone. Not that I've ever done that, you know, but, but yeah, they pulled a dine and dash. Anybody ever heard of that? Uh, heard of that, uh, you know, that term? The old dine and dash. The fact is many Christians do this in a spiritual sense every single Sunday. They pull a dine and dash. They show up, they eat the spiritual food, and then she's like, I'm out of here. To, to prove my point, I just want to consider the results of a recent study which is titled The Generosity Factor, Evangelicals and Giving. That's the, the name of this study. And according to this study, a meager 13% of evangelicals are actually giving their church 10% of their income. 13%. At the same time, the study also reveals 50% are giving less than 1% of their income annually. 
less than 1%. That's right, the median amount for church giving at this point in time is 0.57% of their annual income. Let that just sink in. That's less, you know, that's just a little over a half of 1%. There's also another data set that comes from nonprofit source, which reveals this, that only 5% of church members give regularly. 5%. It's truly amazing. And 37% of those who consider themselves evangelicals don't give anything to their church. 37% of those who call themselves evangelicals don't give a dime at their church. Yeah, they pull a dime and dash every single Sunday. They show up, they consume the spiritual food, but then they're out the door and they gave nothing. Now, please trust me when I tell you, I'm not trying to guilt trip anyone into giving because I know that God's going to provide for the staff of this church. I know that God is going to take care of us regardless of whether you're part of that 37% or not. But I've been called to present you with the whole counsel of God's word. And that's my job. And with this as the goal, I'm compelled to tell you that the Lord has commanded that those who are called to full-time ministry should receive financial support from the sheep they shepherd. You can obey that command or disobey that command. That's between you and God. And I don't look at the books. I don't know who gives what. So I'll never have a, a, a dollar amount above your head when I talk to you. I don't want to know. But God knows. And he's the one who chooses how he's going to deal with those who break his commandments. I think Paul put it plainly in Galatians chapter 6 where he declares, let him who is taught the word share in all good things with him who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. That's what the word of God says. I'm here, just here to teach it. Don't be mad, I'm just a mailman. But Paul here seems to be suggesting here that the old dine and dash is, you know, something that Christians do as they mock God. Dine and dash disciples are effectively mocking God. And the reason why is because they're failing to share in all good things with those who are helping them to learn the word of God. It's for this reason that Paul encouraged every Christian to support the saints who are helping the sheep of our Savior to become the servants of the Lord. Christian, listen, regardless of whether we're called to full-time ministry or we're called to the secular workforce and then in support of full-time ministry, regardless of where we all land with that, the Lord has directed every disciple to become his servants. We're all called to become his servants. And with this as our goal, I encourage every Christian to consider the example of Christ Jesus. Because remember, Jesus is the one who took on the form of a bond servant. Jesus took on the form of a bond servant through his physical incarnation. And after coming in the likeness of men, he then humbled himself and became an obedient servant who suffered 
and died for our sins. That's the example of our Savior. And listen, the word Christian, it, it, it means little Christ. In other words, when we claim to be Christians, what we're saying is that we're followers or imitators of Christ. And Christ's example was to become a bondservant for us. Christ's example was to come and wash feet and then say, hey, don't, don't forget, a servant's not greater than his master. He's the master, and yet he came and washed feet. And now he's calling those who claim to be Christians to become bondservants in, in a similar sort of way. Those who trust in him should follow in his footsteps by becoming the sacrificial servants who are being led by the indwelling spirit of God so that regardless of whether we're living in the city limit walls or whether we're living beyond and working in our own fields, either way, we're called to become the servants of God. And so rather than looking for a position of prominence, hoping that someone might put us up on a pedestal, let's instead become the servants of our Savior and let's serve him all for the glory of God. Let's pray.